Listener Production. What if words were your world and then you realised your child was struggling to read? I think there was a grief in knowing that he wasn't going to be able to access the kind of stories that I'd grown up loving and the kind of world that I'd been able to access so easily. Today on Feed, Play, Love, acclaimed children's author Sally Rippon on how we can help all kids find the joy in reading. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. Books can open up worlds to us, but for kids who have trouble reading, these worlds can be out of reach, leaving them feeling isolated, frustrated and falling behind at school. And the struggle to read can have implications that resonate throughout a child's life. My guest today knows this path too well. Sally Rippon is one of Australia's most popular children's book authors. When she realised her son was having trouble reading, she assumed that it would pass. But it didn't, leading to years of trying to find answers. Now Sally has written her first book for adults. It's called... Wild Things, How We Learn to Read and What Can Happen If We Don't. Hi, Sally. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. As an author, books and words are integral to you and you describe school as being easy for you as a kid, as it was for your first two kids. What was school like for your youngest son? Well, there were a lot of signs quite early on that, unfortunately, I didn't take for the red flags that they were. So he wasn't using full sentences by the time he started kindergarten. And I had just thought that was because he was the youngest and cutest member of our family and all his (laughs) needs were being easily met. Uh, His prep teacher also mentioned that she thought there might be some learning delays there. But I, like you have said, just thought that they would sort themselves out. So it wasn't really until he got to grade three where it became really clear that not being able to access reading wasn't only affecting his ability to access good stories, but also how he felt about himself and how much he was able to engage in the classroom. So he started saying things like, I hate reading and I hate books, which is bad enough in itself. But also, sadly, I hate school. Mm. And at that age, if a child doesn't like school, it's a big, big part of their life. So he very quickly became disengaged. He had some lovely primary school teachers who took him under their wing. But once kids like this get to high school, that's when the wheels really fall off. And it's interesting you say at primary school, you're like, it will sort itself out because I know uh, my kids are now 10 and 8. It It is unsettling when they're not uh, keeping up or if they're, I mean, I haven't been that invested in whether they're top of the class, but if you think they're at the bottom of the class for reading, it can be really confusing as to whether it's a problem or whether it will sort itself out because typically they do say by year three, that's when they kind of hit their stride and on they go. Exactly. So for about the first three years of schooling is when you really want to get the reading sorted out because the first few years the teacher can dedicate to a child learning to read. After that, a child needs to read to learn. And so really everything a child accesses from there on comes through reading And I had just thought, okay, my child won't be a reader. But of course, every subject involves reading. And also just the the ability to articulate your feelings and how your thoughts. And if language is something that is challenging for you, then your self-esteem can be impacted in so many ways. 
So a primary school teacher is wonderful at helping a child see their their skills and the things that are worthy and what the child can contribute to the classroom. High school students are expected to be a little bit more self-directed, more self-motivated. And so it's not really even fair on a teacher to have a high school kid come into class without those basic skills being met. So there are lots of studies now done into the way we learn to read. And I've just started listening to an excellent podcast by Emily Hanford that you can download called Sold a Story. And it really is about sometimes it's even the way our children have been taught to read will mean that they can get to the end of primary school without having developed those basic skills. My son does have learning difficulties, so he is dyslexic. And we later found out that he's ADHD. So he would have required a lot more hands-on support. But all children really should be getting to the end of primary school with great skills in, in reading because that's how we learn. That point about you're learning to read up to a point and then you're reading to learn is such an important point that you really don't think about unless you're confronted with it. And parents, even in primary school, are somewhat separated from that education process. Was that something that you became aware of when he was in primary school or was it only later on at high school that you went, oh, okay, (laughs) okay, this is going to be a real problem? Well, the interesting thing about that, and Emily Hanford mentions this in her podcast, is that over the last couple of years, particularly in Victoria, where I come from, a lot of us have been working very intensively with our children doing homeschooling through the COVID pandemic through all the lockdowns. So this is where a lot of parents have started to see my child isn't really engaging with the lessons in the way they should be, or they're not reading at the standard that I thought they were. For me, primary school was easier to access because I have a very flexible work life. I'm an author. I work from home. So I could go into the classroom and be a reading helper. So I could see quite clearly that my son wasn't catching up to his peers and he certainly wasn't progressing. But a lot of parents are working and so they're not able to get that access to their child's education. So really rely on their teachers to tell them where they're at. And a lot of teachers, if they like the child, they'll just say they're doing fine. And, you know, this is no fault of their own because a lot of children can really mask their problems for quite a long time. And so I think because my son was a sweet, sunny little boy, he was a pleasure to have in the classroom. A lot of those problems did go undetected by teachers for quite a long time. And it wasn't until he became a teenager became a little bit broody and dark and surly with the hood up and the arms crossed, (laughs) that we could really see that he wasn't feeling good about himself. That is terrifying because both myself and my husband work full time and homework is really hard to fit in. And my son has struggled with reading and we're across it now. Um, But yeah, it was really hard to actually know this is what's happening and how to support him. Talk to me about confidence because you mentioned there a few things. So we're talking about um, you need to be able to read in order to progress in schooling. Talk to me about how it impacted your son that he wasn't doing as well as his peers when it came to comprehension and everything that follows from that. Well, it wasn't until the end of year seven, which is the first year of high school in Victoria, that it was really, really clear how much his confidence had declined and he had actually got to the point where he'd stopped handing anything in but we didn't find this out until the last day of the last day of term oh my god (laughs) really just a disaster (laughs) and I said to him you know what's going on how come you haven't handed any work and you like maths and and why didn't you tell us that you were struggling so much but I think a lot of these children I know he's a sweet sensitive boy 
he was worried about worrying us. So he just didn't tell anybody and he just flew under the radar all this time. I also have to admit, I feel pretty angry with the school that it was the last day of school that we found out that this was going on. And so by that stage, it did feel like that boat had really left the harbour and, and we had a lot of catching up to do. So it wasn't really until a couple of years later that I started to really upskill. And like yourself, you know, I work a lot, I tour a lot, and I think, you know, it is a lot of pressure on parents to think that they've got to do this extra work at home. But I knew nothing about learning difficulties. I knew nothing about neurodivergency. I didn't know anything about advocating for my child. And I realized, you know, this is almost a full-time job advocating for your child. It's not almost, it is. <laughs> it it really is a full-time is. job. Yeah. And so I set myself a year. I stopped touring. I really focused on trying to turn things around for my son and move schools as well and found a, a support team of teachers that were a little bit more on board. But, you know, I can speak English. I can navigate the school system. I have the financial means to do this for my child. But the devastating thing is this isn't going to be the case for all families. And so a lot of these children are the ones that fall through the cracks and don't have the family support, fly under the radar for a certain amount of time at school, and then their behavior changes because they feel terrible about themselves. Every day they turn up feeling like a failure. And that can make some of them angry. That can make some of them act up. My son became the class clown. and School isn't a friendly place if you can't engage, if you don't feel like you have something to contribute. And you often gravitate towards other people who aren't doing well at school either because they become, you know, your support system. And teachers don't look like they're your friends anymore. They should be. But, you know, these, these kids often band together and they get written off pretty quickly. And this is what was happening for my son. So it was really a terrible thing to, to witness. And... Lockdown ended up being a good thing for us in Melbourne because no teenage boy would voluntarily spend that amount of time with us, <laughs> with their mother. But it, I'd really lost contact with him. It was really hard to reach him. And so during that period of time, we spent a lot of time just connecting, really talking through what had been going on for him. And I signed up to do a counselling course because I thought I really need to upskill on all these things. And I'm happy to report he's a lovely, beautiful young man now. But, you know, it was touch and go there for a while. He really wasn't in a good place for quite a long time. There are so many things in what you just said, but I, I just want to come back to that idea of being an advocate because obviously this is happening for your son when he's a teenager. A lot of our listeners, their children are much younger, but I actually don't know that that role of advocating is ever easier. Like I know we want intervention to come early so that we can help support our kids so they don't get into high school and have your son's experience. But the truth is you don't just get to send your kid to school and set and forget. You actually do need to watch them. And if there is a problem, you have to advocate. Can you tell me about what that was like for you? You mentioned there that you took a year off, that you signed up for these courses and that you likened it to a full-time job. In my mind, part of the uh, challenge with advocating is actually working out how to do it. Mm. What was that experience like for you? I think it's really important what you say, that as, as quickly as we can get intervention in, the smaller the gap will be to cover because so much time had been lost and my son had missed out on so many really basic skills that he should have acquired over that period of time. That was why it required such a huge catch-up commitment from me. 
I'm meeting a lot of parents these days who either because they're just a bit more switched on than I was <laughs> or potentially people talk about this more that are getting in really quickly. And it's true, the advocacy has to really go throughout their schooling time. But the earlier you get onto it, the more you can set up skills and the more then you can teach your child to self-advocate as well. So ideally, by the time they finish primary school, they know who they are. So I interview this younger uh, woman um, in northern New South Wales, Georgia Ryan, who is um, still in high school and she's a fantastic advocate for dyslexics and she can speak from her own experience as being dyslexic herself. And she's been taught very early on what she can ask for, what her strengths are and what she needs to compensate for some of the weaknesses she might have too. So that's the best case scenario. But because my son had kind of gone under the radar for so long, we had a lot of catching up to do. So advocacy is a tricky thing. And I think for me, it was really important to tap into other support groups. So the Dyslexic Victoria Society um, support group in Melbourne were the first people I went to and incredible parents there that just exchange information. Um, there are a lot of support groups online that you can tap into that can give you ideas of what to do. I paid for a professional educational advocate to come with me into his high school as well. So just so that I knew what I could ask for. So extra time on exams or potentially having a reader and a scribe. There are lots of things that you can do that your son or daughter. What a shame though you needed to pay <laughs> someone to help you do that. I, I mean, I, I totally understand why you would need it, mm. but what a shame that schools aren't set up to show you the way. Well, I think I did interview a lot of teachers for the book because I really make pains to say this is a very supportive book of teachers because I think particularly over the last few years, teachers have had a, a terrible rap. You know, a lot of parents at home, very angry, you know, why is my child <laughs> not doing this or getting that or whatever? And teachers have a really hard time. You know, they have 25 or more students, all with their different needs within a classroom. So all the teachers that I interviewed, the number one thing they said they needed was lower student-to-teacher ratio mm. because a lot of the teachers can see where these children are struggling, but they've also got another 24 or more to deal with. So if there were smaller classrooms or if they could have more aids in the classroom, potentially, then they could do this work. But that's not going to be the case. And a lot of teachers aren't really expected to understand what neurodivergency is and the extra support a child might need. So that's where it does come back on the parents. And yeah, it's hard and I'm so non-confrontational. That's why I write books rather than actually <laughs> approach people because it's, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal to fight for your child when you're not a confrontational person like me. But with the education system, I am 100% behind you when it comes to teachers. But is it really their job even? I mean, I'm just wondering, is it more about how we set up our schools? Is it more about the structure of our schools and the resources we give our schools? Because surely neurodivergence now is a big enough thing for our children that, I don't know, should every school have a neurodivergent specialist? I'm not talking necessarily, I mean, I know we have counsellors, but in someone who understands how education needs are different for everyone? Ideally, yes. <laughs> In an ideal world, you know, the education system teachers are working within is 100 years old. So it's very outdated. And teachers are passionate about what they do. I mean, why would you go into that job if you didn't really want to make a difference mm -hmm. in children's lives? <laughs> yes. And teachers can and do regularly. But they're also working with what they've been taught in their pre-service and they're also working within the restraints of what they've got to do. And so they've, you know, constantly they're being bombarded with new methods of assessing children. So yes, I think a specialist in each school would be amazing 
in Victoria, for example, we've just started to roll out mental health experts to put into each school. And so I think probably the next step is destigmatizing mental health and also neurodivergency, which is really what I hope to do with this book is starting conversations about what that might look like. Because I know when I was at school, if you went off to the school counsellor, oh, there was a lot of gossip about what might be going on. Whereas I think my children now, my older children who are in their mid to late 20s, they talk much more openly about mental health. They're much more articulate about all of this. And I think neurodivergency is the next thing. You know, we had the wonderful Emma Shiano giving a press club talk about being a late diagnosed ADHD person. Hannah Gadsby is doing comedy about being autistic. Beautiful Chloe Hayden, you know, openly autistic. So this feels like it's changing now. And, you know, I can see it happening in schools. And my sister has 10-year-old twin boys. And apparently at her school in Melbourne, in a very culturally diverse area, the cool kids are the ones that are different. And so I feel excited by that prospect. I do think that that's what our future for our children is. But we're kind of still at, at that place of change, of transition. And my son didn't quite get into that. But I do hope things are changing. I do believe they are. I suppose I've gone a little bit far ahead because um, you mentioned that your son was diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia. Obviously, later in their in his schooling career, um, people can receive diagnoses in different ways. Sometimes it's a relief because then you know what's going on. Other times it can be quite confronting. What was it like for you to finally get a diagnosis? Dyslexia was very easy to spot because you can tell straight away if a child is struggling to learn to read. And so that was something that I thought was the only thing that we were going to have to deal with. I knew nothing about ADHD. And I come from a generation where I had thought ADHD was, you know, ratty little boys running around the classroom on red cordial. (laughs) (laughs) And we now know it presents in so many different ways. You know, there's three types of ADHD. You can be um, hyperactive, you can be inattentive, or you can be a combination of both. And I assume my son was probably the inattentive type because he wasn't crying out for attention in the way that other children might be. And it also looks very different in boys and girls. You know, boys tend to have quite external behavior. Girls will often become very good at masking because they're cult, you know, they're socially um, conditioned to be good. And so that's why often women can go through their whole lives without recognizing that they're ADHD because they just get very good at doing the right thing all the time. And often it will present in women as anxiety because they've got so much that they've had to manage without realizing that, in fact, their brain works differently. So when my son was first diagnosed, um, I was in a complete panic because, you know, I'd been this very natural mom and very much prided myself on not giving my kids antibiotics unless absolutely necessary. (laughs) And now we were talking about medicalization and, and I recognized that so much of what I had to learn to be a parent to my son was to drop a lot of the things that I'd had. So I had to drop the ideas of what I thought ADHD was or what it was to give your child medication to support their brain connections, which is basically what ADHD medication does. But also just things like what it was to be a success or who I thought my son was. And I had to really start to think, okay, who are you? And what are the great things about having a neurodivergent brain as opposed to why are you so different to everybody else I know, (laughs) (laughs) including your big brothers? And so it's been such a gift for me. I mean, it was a steep learning curve and I feel like I did mess up a few times along the way, but I'm really happy to report that it doesn't matter when you put the work in. I believe you can turn your child around if you start to do that work upon yourself and really start to see who they are and what they need. It's so interesting. There's so much about parenting, I feel, that is 
more about us than them, regardless of what's going on. So if you were talking to a parent whose child has just been diagnosed with ADHD, dyslexia, being on the spectrum in some way, and they're struggling, because often at that point you are struggling because you can see your child is struggling and you don't know what to do and everything can seem hard, which I imagine can transfer onto that diagnosis. Like my child has ADHD. It's going to be really tough. We're going to have to do this, this and this. How do you turn that around for yourself? It's a great question because I'm meeting lots of these parents now since the book's come out and I've been touring. Lots and lots of them are coming up to me and asking the exact same question. You know, what do I do? My my child's eight or nine. They've just been diagnosed. What do I have ahead of me? And I think it's foolish for me to say it's going to be an easy ride. It's not. It is a big commitment and there can be huge challenges. Often mental health, it can be really badly affected in neurodivergent children, but it's really important to know that this is not because neurodivergency creates bad mental health. It's because the support systems they have are not in place. So I was taught by my dear friend Eliza Hull what the social model of disability is and that there's nothing wrong with the person. It's the environment that needs to change. So Eliza, who's a musician, if she can't get onto a stage to perform because there's no ramp, she's disabled by her environment. And if a neurodivergent child is growing up in a world where they can't get their needs met and they can't get their support systems put in place, they're also disabled by that environment and that is then going to impact their mental health. So I think the sooner you know and the sooner you understand also not just the challenges but all the great things that neurodivergency can offer, you can start to focus on a child's strengths. You can start to compensate for their weaknesses in really supportive ways and hopefully if you get onto that quickly, it won't have a great effect on their mental health. But yeah, it's, it's a job. But, you know, I'm also part of the Peas in the Pod podcast podcast. I don't know if you know that group. They're amazing. And there are many more parents that have even more challenges with their children. And you just have to suck it up. You know, this is just what you've been given. You've been given this beautiful, unique child that is going to be different potentially to your friend's children and have different needs. And so really it is just that thing that this this is what I've been given. What can what can I learn from this? Now I know your book is about education and learning and reading and all those things. I'm just so fascinated with your personal experience and what you were saying there about the environment. So what that can mean if you have a child who is um, either neurodivergent or has differences and their world is not set up for them, it can mean a lot in terms of how your own world looks, in terms of how you set things up for them. That seems like it can be quite hard, but once you do it, seems like everything starts to flow from there. I don't know. Was that your experience? It was. And because I had left it go for so long, there was a bigger transition period than you would hope for. Um, But just to give you an example, you know, my son is 19 and a half now and he's ADHD. He's always going to be ADHD. So executive functioning is an issue for people with ADHD and that's organizational skills are really, really hard. So when he leaves the house at the day, I have a list of all the things that he'll need, his his tram pass, his wallet, his keys, all of those kind of things. Now, another adult could turn to me and say, for goodness sakes, you know, your child's 19 and a half. Why are you still going through that list for him? And of course I don't have to, But if he forgets any of those things, he starts his day on the back foot. And I think, what is it out of my day? It's five minutes out of the day. 
to just make sure that he can get on top of things right from the beginning and have a better day. So that's a really small step that really is supportive and helpful to my son. I do it without judgment. I stop myself, you know, with that little voice saying, oh, for goodness sakes, you know, he's a grown up now, let him do his own thing. Because you can do that for children who are neurotypical or who don't have disabilities. By the time they're that age, surely, you know, they can go off into the world and do their own thing. But you may just have to support your child with difference for a little bit longer. And that's okay. You know, that's that's parenting. That's a good thing. Parenting doesn't have a cutoff mark. And, it, you know, it's not one set of skills that you might need for one child. It will be different for every child you have. And that's what my child needs. So that's one thing you might do is um, when they're older, you still help them to get that organisation in place. I'm wondering if you have any advice for parents who have children who might be neurodiverse and they know what their kid needs to be regulated and feel safe, but that doesn't fit in with everybody else's perception of what a kid should be. Do you have any advice for that parent? You're going to come across them a lot. You're going to come across a lot of well-meaning friends with kids that sail through life that are going to have lots of advice for you. And it's going to be really hard to hear. And you just have to smile nicely and say, thank you. And then as my partner used to say to them, to say to me when I was despairing after all this well-meaning but unasked for advice was don't listen to them. They don't have a Sam. And so you have to remember that your child, only you can know what they need. And for children that do find school and education and life easy, it's okay to let them fail, you know, because that, that is an important part of growth. But often children who are failing every day, all day, they need some success. And so if you can just take away a few of those little things that will prevent failure and help them find things they can be successful at, that's what's going to help them get through school because school can feel like a life sentence for a child in the middle of it. Um, I think about a friend of my father's, for example, who was severely dyslexic throughout school, very academic family of doctors. He read his first book when he finished school and that was Winnie the Pooh. He went on to found Big Pond Internet. Wow. Very successful man, <laughs> retired at 50, so surely is very, very smart. But reading is not something that's accessible to him. But he said the one thing that got him through school feeling good about himself is he was a state sailing champion. So he was good at something. So that's really important big picture stuff. I think for parents that are struggling, find something your child is good at. It might be within school. It might not be in school. It could be baking. It could be sport. It doesn't matter but they have to have some success. So if you can help them find that, that will make a big difference. I bet what some of those parents hear a lot is tough love. You need to give your kids some tough love. What would you say to that? Oh, I'd just say life is tough enough as it is. Yes. <laughs> if they can't get unconditional love from their parents. I mean, that doesn't mean you don't want your child to challenge themselves, but realistically look at what is challenging for them. So, you know, my son being ADHD doesn't mean that he can't unpack a dishwasher or put the washing machine on. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like there are certain expectations that you have of somebody that shares a house with you. You're not going to let them off the hook in everything. But it also depends on their level of capacity. You know, there may be some children that potentially can't do very basic skills that we might expect of someone of the same age. So it really is just realistically looking at what is a challenge for your child and what is unrealistic and balancing that out so that they are extended, that they can feel that they can have success, but they're not crushed by the weight of failure day in, day out. You know, that, that's terrible for anybody to feel like that. Oh, God, yes. As you mentioned, it was an intense year when you tried to turn things around. Obviously, it isn't 
one year and you're done. It's it's an ongoing process, particularly if you have a child who's young now and you're going to need to support them for a while. Is there one thing that you wish you knew back at the very start of this long process that might help other parents who are at the beginning now? Definitely. And this is the one that, like when I say I took a year, really that was also just me trying to understand what neurodivergency and reading difficulties were. Um, I also read a lot of neuroscience. I read a lot of information, really dense books. And I decided, I had already decided at that stage that I wanted to put all of this information in a book because it is all out there. It's just sometimes quite hard to access, particularly when you're a panicking parent. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the research was particularly to support my son, but also to support other parents. I really felt like there was so much stuff I wish I'd known earlier. But I think the number one thing that all parents have told me is trust your gut. You know, I think most parents can sense if there's something going on with their kid. And often well-meaning teachers will say, no, they're fine. They're fine. And so you shut that down in yourself, which is what I did. And I think if you just sense that something's a little bit off, just trust your gut. I think that's the the number one takeaway. And follow through. Mm. Sally, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's been a total pleasure. That's Sally Rippon. She's the author of Wild Things, How We Learn to Read and What Can Happen If We Don't. And I'll put links to the book in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.